Matt McInerney, New York. Andy Mangold, Baltimore, Maryland. Dan Auer, San Francisco. November 19th, 2012. This is On The Grid, episode 20. Mozilla introduces a new operating system idea that's run entirely off of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And passwords are dead. What are we going to do to replace them? We also talk about Dan's ladder, Matt's trash can, and my demanding standards. This is On The Grid. Let's Let's go. go. Gentlemen, how was your week? It was all right. Not too bad. Anything eventful? Uh, no, not really. Oh. Although, although, I just want to point out, this is totally the 20th episode. Yes, 20 episodes, 20 hours of us talking, almost a day. I'm so proud of us, and also kind of uh, of freaked out that we recorded that much time. It went by really quickly. I know. It did. This is good. This is good. We'll continue, and we'll have 100 episodes at some point. I think at this point, you know, this ship is not going down. We've we've sort of reached stability, and these people are stuck with us from here on out, so. I know. It's a pretty good feeling. I didn't even know you guys starting this thing, so. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Cheers we're, to we're, that. we're like a Twitter success story, I was thinking today. I was explaining to, to a friend who's not sort of plugged in the podcast. She was like, oh, how do you, you know these people? I was like, oh, I'm, I met them on, on Twitter. She was, yeah. like, well, she was like, what is that? How does that work? And I'm like, well, you, <laughs> first you follow somebody because you like something they did, and then, <laughs> then you respond to one of their things one day, and then, and then one day the response turns into a conversation, and then pretty soon you're hanging out and recording podcasts. Twitter is remains one of the harder things to explain to a person that doesn't understand oh, it. It's exactly. so hard. That's why it's so good. It's like one of the only things that doesn't really have a physical analog attached to it. It's like everyone in the world is in a big room and they're all yelling all the time, but you can always hear the people you want to hear. It's just weird. It's hard to explain, which is what makes it great. I'm tired mm-hmm. of things just being something we already have in real life, ported over to the internet. Let's make new things like Twitter. There you go. My um, week was great, incidentally. Uh, Andy, tell a, me about your week. Well, we had Friends of the Thanksgiving. So every year we do oh. a pre-Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. one week before our real Thanksgivings with our families to celebrate friendship and to cook and do fun stuff. So that was last Thursday, and that was delicious, and we're still eating leftovers, which has been great. Great. God, yeah. I would w- love to have two Thanksgivings. Would you love just it. Just make it happen. Just make it happen. Yeah, you, I actually did one of those, too. It worked out pretty well. Dan, you just make one. Just say, I'm going to have it Thanksgiving before, oh. Thanksgiving with my friends, and then a family Thanksgiving. You're, you're, an, you're an adult. You make your own holidays now. Speaking of which, uh, Matt, we're actually yeah. going to be doing Thanksgiving with Aaron and Megan. So oh, well, there uh, you go. Yeah, so for everybody listening. Oh, totally. Was, yeah, Aaron and Megan. Those, those people are great. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> no, that was the other 50% of uh, Read Between the Letting back in the day. So Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be pretty cool. Well, that's fun. Good. Yep. I would say my week was cool. Uh, Pentagram celebrated 40 years. Holy and we shit. Had a, we had a huge party. It, it was it was a really swanky party. I'm pretty proud of it. Not that I had anything to do with planning it, but um, I would yeah. say my boss and my project coordinator had a lot to do with planning it, and they did a great job. It nice. was at this big swanky ballroom in Times Square, and everybody showed up. I don't know. There were probably like 1,000 people. And I, the, here's the one thing about design celebrities is that – You'd have a hard time picking them out of a crowd, which is literally what you would have had to do at the party. Yeah. But I know they were there. So, <laughs> very exciting. Awesome. So, what's more impressive, really? 40 years or 20 episodes? Yeah, I'm going to go with 40 years of Pentagram. 20 episodes. Exciting. Yeah. 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 It's That's a hell of a lot more time. Just uh, two years at Pentagram uh, than this show, obviously. And uh, that is just a drop in the bucket. Just so. give us another 38 and a half years. We'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> 
can you imagine that? Can you imagine if we recorded this podcast for 40 fucking years? It'll be amazing <laughs> that one day there will be podcasts that bet around 40 years. I mean, assuming that we don't call it something else, but there yeah, will yeah. be that potentially a show that goes on for 40 years. Podcasts are going to get replaced by braincasts, which just shoot stuff right into your brainstem. Actually, uh, speaking of speaking of braincasts, which is not really speaking of braincasts, but On the Grid is now in Stitcher, which is like the live mobile streaming oh, app. Oh, we are? So if you like to, yeah. We just got accepted as a content partner today. So if you oh, like I had to no consume your On the Grid that way, get the Stitcher mobile app and download On the Grid. Or no, don't download Stream On the Grid. Stream That's why it's good. It's different. In the Woo. tubes. They, but I, but like the process is you have to submit uh, an application and they have to approve you as a content partner and they ask you how many listeners you have. So it actually was like a little bit more formal than iTunes. So they're just like, yeah, yeah. you're in. Seems <laughs> like no part of that uh, approval process is them actually listening to an episode because I'm not sure would have made it through if they had done that. Yeah. That's, that might be true. But they did ask for number of listeners and they had they clearly had a threshold. So that was They'd cool. be like, these guys just talk about Pop-Tarts and friction. Hmm. <sighs> so what are your guys' favorite holidays? This is an important question for me. Ooh. I do like Thanksgiving the most because it's non-religious. You don't have to deal with that part. You don't have to deal with people being mad at you if you wish them a happy one. Yeah. And there's most, it's mostly about food, and you don't have to worry about buying people presents. You clearly have never wished a Native American a happy Thanksgiving, because let me <laughs> tell you. <That's... laughs> you think it's bad wishing, wishing a non-Christian Merry Christmas. You try wishing a Native American happy Thanksgiving. It does not go well. That's a very good point. I'm sorry. I apologize. Yeah, we're sorry, uh, Native Americans, for Matt's bigotry. Wow. Thanksgiving is far and away my favorite holiday by a pretty wide margin. For the reasons you said, Matt, it's a religious, mostly. It's not all stressful. It's just like you eat food, you hang out with some people, maybe, watch some football, fall asleep on the couch. Best holiday. Also takes place in the best time of the year. And I'm also really dreading Christmas. I got to be honest. I'm not looking forward to the Christmas season. Why? Christmas is like my least favorite thing. Seriously? Well, that's just not true. So here's the thing with Christmas. Christmas is great in theory. Like, the idea of Christmas sounds pretty good, uh, except for all the religious stuff. But the thing is, it's like such a, it's a celebration of, like, shitty materialism. And I'm okay with some materialism. I, I'm actually, I can defend materialism from time to time, but mm-hmm. not, like, shitty materialism. Not, like, gifts you got out of obligation for somebody at Target. You didn't really know what they wanted. You just got something because you had to. It's just, like, a big capitalist Oh, I sound like the worst Scrooge ever now, but it's a very stressful time of year for me. I don't like giving gifts. I don't like receiving gifts. I don't like watching Christmas commercials. Also, everyone always raves about Christmas music and Christmas movies, and they're always the worst music and the worst movies. The only reason people listen to them is because it happens to be the season. <sighs> Scrooge. Well, I'm Fair offended. I, I Actually, I like Christmas, but also my family has turned Christmas into a very functional gift-giving ceremony. Yes. Um, we all ask exactly what the other person wants, and we give them that. And it's yeah. usually a useful item. So less stress there. I, I appreciate that. I think a lot of people get upset about the lack of surprise, but not me. I get the thing I want. Yeah. That yeah, I would have got for myself anyway that was useful. Yeah, that's more I don't buy a lot of stuff that's not useful. See, I'm, I'm not really offended, but I'm offended. Because my favorite is Christmas. Because I am still a five-year-old in a onesie getting excited every year that Santa got me something. I love that every episode we discover that you and I are just more and more polar opposites. <laughs> It's in so every, good, though, because in every quantifiable we we're way. the same people. And then we realize Andy and Dan so far apart. I don't know where yeah. I fall on the spectrum, but I Andy don't know. and Dan, different no, people. But I love the holiday. I think it, I love it because uh, our family does it in a way where it's not really about the gift giving. It's more mm. that uh, we actually get together that one day out of the year that like everybody gets to stop their schedule and just like hang out, you know? So it, it's you a really it good family experience. 
See, what, I think what we're finding out is that Dan is what we call a real American, and Andy's a goddamn <laughs> communist. I love if Apple it, Pie. I would definitely be pegged as a communist if it was, you know, 1950s or whatever. Uh, the Red Scare. McCarthy would be all my ass. Yeah. Anyways, I think Christmas is magical. That, and it gives me an excuse to put up a bunch of bright blinking lights. And I have a shitload of bright blinking lights. I do love Christmas Christmas lights. is a good excuse to be tacky as fuck. Yeah. There's something yeah. to be said for that. <laughs> I, I wish we could put up Christmas lights year round. Let, okay. let, let go your modernist agenda and be tacky as fuck. Yes. <laughs> Man, only, only a graphic designer looks forward to the... Uh, Time of year where they can unshackle themselves from their modernist sensibilities and just let loose and wear a sweater <laughs> that isn't all black. Oh, to be fair, I don't, but I give everyone else a pass for a couple of days. And then I start complaining again after. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, on that note, I say we... Uh, top of the dock. You know what we're going to do. We're going to go right to the top of that good old dock. Sweet. So on the top of the dock is a talk about Mozilla introducing the idea of Firefox OS. So uh, it's essentially a web-based operating system that looks and acts a lot like every other mobile platform. Uh, The only difference is that applications are actually built off of web standards. So it's really easy for a much wider audience to be able to build applications. It uh, allows for a way, like Google does, build to mine and aggregate like results for something that you're looking for so uh you know i i introduced it but i know that matt has a lot of feelings about it so i want to hear what your thoughts are matt the reason i like this is because i i have mixed feelings about app stores i mean there's there's something that's really great about being able to design something that has a certain set set of parameters like it's really great to be able to design a thing that's for a specific screen and Mm -hmm. you get to have those parameters and you get to make you get to craft your thing so that's really great. But the reality of it is is it's so closed and it's only for a certain number of people. And also, you don't only get to design that thing. If you're working for any company that's bigger than, you know, bigger than yourself or bigger than a certain market, you have to do the iOS app, you have to do the Android app, you have to do the BlackBerry. Hopefully that's fading away. But I mean, <laughs> you guys have developed apps. You know the story and I'm not I'm not yeah. telling anybody anything new. So there's the there's the kind of like the great part of developing the iOS app and the terrible part of it. And the terrible part is, I think, of the failing of the entire idea of it. And it has been very successful in making money, but I would like to think that there's a way to make money going the other way, which is the kind of standards way where you build a thing that can work on every device. And I think that's the promise of the internet. It's It seems slowly slipping away, but I would hope this might be coming back to us. And... I don't actually think I don't know that Mozilla is going to succeed with this. It seems it seems a little late, which the article brings up. Yes. It seems a little late to bring it into mobile. They're, they say it's because they were waiting for things to kind of resolve themselves and so they could develop for less fragmented markets. And it, I guess that makes sense, but I think it might be a little bit of bullshit and that they might have missed it a little bit. So I love what they could do with this. I really want the world to work in an HTML5 kind of way where you develop an app that works for everything. I just, I, I wonder if we missed the boat and we're stuck in the walled garden. Hmm. It's interesting because the only real technical shift here seems to be the integration of a, a standardized payment system, a way to accept money from people 
And then the biggest shift, though, is really just a recontextualization. This isn't a huge technical thing because we already have websites you can pay money for and that there are web products that work on your phone or work on your desktop. We essentially already have this. The only thing they're adding is this new context of a store. And I do think that would have a lot of value to sort of bring the normals into the world of using a lot of web-based apps and stuff. I think, I mean, you or I, or I think most of our listeners probably wouldn't hesitate to pay for a useful web app. But I think still many, many people out there in the normal world uh, feel like it's weird to give money to a website and why do I have to pay for this? Isn't it on the internet? Why can't everyone just have it? Whereas with something like the App Store, it's seen a lot of success amongst normal people because it's very clearly a store. And a store is a metaphor people understand. They have to buy things in a store. And that's when you get them. Well, so I think that the biggest shift here is really just that sort of contextual change, which I think could be a, a big benefit. Well, yeah. you're right that it's really – what this is is really a frame. It's not like changing anything big about the internet. This stuff is already there for you to use. It's just somebody has to frame it in the right, right way that everybody wants to use it. Yeah, and it, that's really just the point is that if you give somebody something and it functions the same way in two different platforms, uh, I guess in two different code bases, and they don't know the difference, then they're not going to care. I mean if it shows up as a bundled something that they can download and use – most people aren't going to care whether it's from HTML5 and JavaScript and CSS as opposed to something like Objective-C. So they actually made a good point that if they can actually build it where there isn't a difference, then that's a pretty good market. Yeah, and I mean, it, it makes me think of, of the way web apps have evolved where you, you know, we talked about it last episode with kind of Flickr and then Instagram and, you know, Flickr, you can do all the things you could do with Instagram. They just added a couple of features and framed it in a different way, and it became very popular. And, I, you know, I think of Pinterest as well. Like, why is Pinterest of any interest beyond the way that it was framed? Yeah. Uh, it's really not. It's a, it's a thing that's been happening over and over and over again. They figured out the best way to frame it. So it gives me some hope that maybe Mozilla has the, the, the ability to frame it in the right way, that HTML5 apps and, and kind of web standard-based apps can work. That's what I want. Hmm. And I, I still have concerns that just the technology involved in building a web standards-based app or an app based on web technologies is still far behind what we can do in native code. And mm -hmm. I, I think that's probably the biggest reason we've seen this delayed. I've, I've heard this talked about for, you know, four years, people talking about why we shouldn't be using native stuff to build apps. We should all be using HTML5 and all these open standards. But, I mean, the reality is that you just don't have the same control. You don't have the same efficiency. You don't have the same access to hardware that you have in, you know, native code. And you can definitely fix all those things, or most of those things. You can definitely figure out a way to give someone access to a, the phone's camera through a, web technologies and that sort of thing. But it just the, the efficiency of it is never going to be as good. And more importantly than that, you're going to have to be running this thing off of a server all the time. And we've, on a number of occasions, built essentially the same thing, one in a version that's running off a server in web technologies and one in native code. And just the incredible speed shift from having just the assets locally on the device already, being able to put a sort of packet there is really helpful. And I guess that that sort of packet of things you could cache could definitely be a part of this technology as well, where you can buy a web app and it you know, installs a few hundred megabytes of images and whatnot on your computer for, for keeps and then it makes everything a little bit faster. But I, I don't know, it, it's still hard to believe. I, my concern is that when they do launch this, if and when it happens, you're going to see a bunch of apps that feel more like websites still, that don't behave really well, they don't respond quickly, they don't have that same feeling that a well-programmed native app has. And if that experience isn't there, people are not going to be willing to pay the money for it. No, I think you're right. And I mean, I, I just mentioned a second ago that I think it's a little bit late. But hey, it might, it might be a little bit early in the fact that we haven't gotten to the kind of web speeds that 
an HTML5 app actually works as well as a native app. I mean, I think, do you, do you think we'll ever get to the point where something stored locally is almost exactly the same as something stored on a cloud? I mean, I, th I think we will, but it might be a while before yeah, we kind of rebuild yeah, infrastructure. Time. It's possible, but I mean, that is going to involve shifts not just in our technologies, like our web standards and whatnot, but also shifts in the infrastructure. And people are going to have to have, you know, access to faster internet speeds when they're out on their phone, you know, not on a Wi-Fi connection and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, I think before we're, before it's indistinguishable, it's going to be a long time. I think for already for a lot of services, though, the, the change is not significant. Um, for things that are mostly text-based or, you know, very simple things that you can do in web technologies, the difference is usually not huge. And a lot of times people will come to us and say, I need an app for this thing. And we'll look at the thing that they want an app for, and we'll then eventually recommend that they instead do a mobile-optimized website because they can get all the things done. It's much faster to build. It's much easier than to open it up to audiences that are not just on iOS. So mm -hmm. I think there is definitely a place for it right now, but for you know the apps that are getting hot, and, and more importantly, the apps that could do something really meaningful and powerful with your device, I think are still going to be native code for a while at least. Ideologically, where do you stand? I, are you on board? Like, if, if this worked tomorrow and it worked perfectly, is this exactly what you were always looking for? Or is there something about native apps that you would ideologically stand behind? I mean, there's a value to to the walled garden sort of approach that you mentioned. And, and the value is that we know when we submit an app to the iOS app store that it's going to be on these devices and these devices have this much power. I mean, for, with Apple's app store, you can even test it on every single device you're making it available for. And I know you mentioned that, but the value of that from a design perspective cannot be overstated. And if you're building a web standards app, then that's something that is going to be inherently available from every single device. And even if you choose to optimize whatever you're doing for, for the iPhone or for the iPad or from, for a specific device, it's going to be available on these other ones. And you're going to have a lot of you know, shoddy code and shoddy experience that's going, to be, that's going to be put out there. So I still really do see the value of knowing that this code is going to be on this specific device and we can test it and the color is going to look exactly the same and everything's going to behave exactly the way we can you know, basically have it in our hands. There's a huge, huge value in that. Uh, so for that reason alone, I still do place a lot of value in the, the app store model where you know, each device or market has its own sort of garden for, for products. Yeah, I do. I mean, as a kind of, I feel like the part of me that loves the idea of libraries and access to information and that anyone can get anything at any time loves the idea of um, this open app store, the HTML5 app store. But the designer part of me thinks in the walled garden way to a degree. It's, I mean, it's it's the what we criticized Microsoft for in one of the previous shows in the Windows 8 conversation we had mm -hmm. about making sure that all these previous features are accessible to all the people all the time. And we criticized that pretty harshly. Mm -hmm. But it's same ideology there that is that we're talking about right now that we're just trying to make the most information available to the most number of people. There's something, I mean, there's something inherently good about that. It's just making it work well for everybody that's like, the most challenging thing to tackle. Hmm. I think this gets at a bigger concept too, which is this idea. I think that we're in this sort of renaissance of people building really interesting things for the web or have been for the past couple of years. I think mobile really took off and that means that we're seeing a lot of really cool new stuff. And I think that because we have the internet and because we can be so easily connected to everybody else that has the internet, there's this immense appeal in making something for everybody and making something that everybody can have. But the design problems that causes at a you know very very deep fundamental level are significant and i'm starting to feel that is more value in doing something for a select audience be that an audience by device or an audience by occupation or an audience by interest 
uh, and doing that thing really well than there is in trying to make like the next thing that everybody's going to use and have and love and, and you know, make a big fuss about. And I think that's another sort of reason to value these sort of local app stores. Like the people that are buying apps in the iPhone app store and in the iOS store are a specific kind of person. And that's just, you know, the reality. It's a huge market. It's getting bigger, but it's still largely dominated by like nerds that are thoughtful, that care about the device and care about the hardware in their life. And if you've ever looked at the Android app store, it's just a whole, whole different story. It's a mess. So, I I mean, even if it was easy for me to do it, I still would have less interest in developing apps for Android because the the markets that I've seen prev, you know prevalent in those sort of areas have been not as interesting to me as the ones in iOS. So I don't want to just assume because we have the internet, everything should be for everybody. Yeah. Well, I, I think the, the challenge I face is I would rather, I do like the idea of designing for a specific audience, but I would rather the audience be decided by the amount that they care about something rather than the amount of money that they have, which yes. is kind of what designing for a device is. Like d- whether, I mean, I guess you could argue that if you care enough about a certain thing, you would go and get an iPhone and pay for the service because, you know, the amount you care is, is relative to the amount of money you're willing to give a thing. But there still is something to say, like, like 50 bucks a month is a lot. And um, the, the, the upfront cost of 200 or whatever, you know, whatever version you get of the iPhone, that still is a lot of money in, in a lot of different settings. So I don't know that you can, you can't completely make that argument. And I would love to have the kind of, universal access to the people who care enough as opposed to the people who are who can spend enough and there are plenty of people it doesn't filter out everyone in the other way too there are plenty of people that have money and not passion so mm-hmm. yeah. it doesn't really make the perfect market yeah i hear yeah. what you're saying that makes that makes a lot of sense i have another question about this too and it's not so much about the the markets and the app stores and everything but they're it's the idea that Mozilla is bringing up an entirely new operating system. Like they, they want to make an entire system that's built, built, build to handle HTML and CSS and JavaScript apps. And uh, I'm kind of getting to the point where I'm realizing that so many companies want to reproduce what Apple and what Google have done with operating systems, with uh, integrated app stores and everything. They want to do the whole package that is turning into an ocean of full packages. Like, have yeah. you guys noticed that? No, I have. And I mean, one of the, I didn't bring this up, but one of the criticisms I was thinking in my head was there can only be so many operating systems. And yeah. I, I would never criticize someone for trying to create an operating system that, can, that could compete with a different one, right? That's only going to help the user in general. But also, you know, you can't expect a person to use, I don't know, three or four different operating systems. I can imagine maybe two, like your, your desktop and your mobile device. Mm-hmm. Ideally, you have one. Yeah, and and the the motivation to make two operating systems compatible with each other is only when they reach ubiquity to the point where you're like a Microsoft, you're you're a Windows and a Mac, where there's so many people using them that they have to work with each other. Well, gr- I mean, granted, this this Firefox one is slightly different in its ideological approach, mm-hmm. but still, the idea of having so many different operating systems is very difficult, and there's not a lot of motivation to make them work together. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is pretty similar to like the Chromebook and the Chrome OS, correct? Like the Chromium OS isn't the thing Google oh. put out. Yeah, I, I mean, mean that was it's... the analogy I drew in my head. Like the those cheap Acer's they put out with the um, the Chrome installed on them, or yeah, we, we Chromebooks, right? Is that what you called it? Yeah, mm-hmm. isn't the Chromium OS also like largely relying on web standards as well? It seems like it's a very similar. Yeah, very it's similar it's almost entirely. Uh, I think yeah. just the base OS is. A native language, but outside of that, everything that runs on it is supposed to be 100% web. Now, from that perspective, I do really love, like, I love the idea of, I mean, right now, I have all my files on my computer, but 
all of my files. I mean, all of them, including the archives are all in Dropbox. I have a big Dropbox account so I can get to any of my files from anywhere I want. I don't save anything not in Dropbox, mm -hmm. um, which is great. And I love the idea of all my files being somewhere in a cloud and my computer just being a sort of shell I use to access that, which I think is the dream of, of the Chromebook, if I'm getting it correctly. So I, I, I love that ideologically, that my a computer hardware just sort of becomes this portal to your stuff, which is stored somewhere safe and uh, accessible from anywhere and you know all that sort of good stuff. So I, that, that's a good aspect of it. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know. When it boils down to it, I see this Firefox idea to be really just a, a web version of what Google has already accomplished with Android because the reality is that when you build something in uh, HTML and CSS, you can make it responsive or fluid so it can handle different screen sizes or browser sizes, which means that multiple types of mobile devices can be catered to with just one code base, where with iOS, you have different nuances that you have to do for an iPad as opposed to an iPhone 4, to an iPhone 5, to an iPod. And I think that's a very good thing that Firefox is doing, what Android is doing. But even working in an Android app before, it's just, it's such, there's so many design issues that come up with having to cater for so many unknowns because you can't have every device with every size that from a design perspective, like you guys were saying, the iOS stuff is easier. Yeah, I think what, I mean, this is kind of what I'm getting at because you can do essentially the exact same thing with an iOS app. You can make an iOS app that's universal and have it just be a web view and in that web view use web technologies and build an app the same way you can with Android. Mm -hmm. But we don't see that happening almost at all, I think because the market won't tolerate it. The people that are using these iOS devices have come to expect a certain level of quality, not just from the hardware, but the software they're putting on these things. And so those apps can't survive. Whereas in Android, there's a, you know, a plethora of these sort of apps that are just these sort of like half-assed web views where it basically already is an HTML5 app they've wrapped up and you know, sold natively. Well, so, and I would wonder if Firefox would actually get to the point where whatever they develop to be the operating system for Firefox OS would actually be accelerated in ways to make a web view feel native. Because if they could accomplish that, then it doesn't matter if it is HTML and CSS, it, as long as it feels native, then it actually, that would be the ideal. I mean, is it as simple as getting caching right? Or is it, uh, obviously there's I think access it's more to the that. kind of the, the, the um, features of the device that you're on, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not just the features too, but you know, when you're using something like Objective-C, uh, you have access to lower level parts of the, you know, just the processor and the things that are actually rendering the graphics and that sort of thing. Right. So you can do things in a more efficient way. Whereas if you're doing anything on the web, you're running it through, you know, the filter of web technologies, which has access on a very shallow level to what the phone is capable of. So mm -hmm. I don't know. And all those things, I mean, they could be, we could fix that. Like we could make web technology just more and more powerful. Yeah. I was going to say the next, I mean, it could be the evolution of web standards too. And saying HTML six takes on these certain qualities javascript can take on these certain qualities and css can handle these things i mean it could we could build to that point yeah mm -hmm. and that's a possibility I, it would take a long time obviously you know web standards take forever to change by you know relatively when it comes to like physical infrastructures it takes much less time obviously for yeah and obviously there are obvious enemies in the process i mean traditionally internet explorer has been the enemy but i would imagine moving forward apple would be the enemy because you know money yeah oh yeah be interesting so, to see that play out I hope it does. I don't expect it to. Yeah. But, <laughs> I mean, I expect it to exist. I don't think it's going to be... I don't think it's going to be as successful. Yeah. And, I don't think and it's going to can challenge... generate the same profit that a uh, walled garden can. Yeah. yeah. Which is actually really sad to say. It's just I just don't expect it to happen. Hey, we're uh, realistic on this show, okay. people. 
I know. I don't. I don't mean to bring it to a dis- depressing place, but actually, you're not being any, depressing. I just said how much I hated Christmas, so it's fine. That's true. <laughs> it's true. I I find the fact that walled gardens are the best answer more depressing than the fact that you don't like Christmas. Uh, yeah. Moving I, on. I, I could see that. Yeah. 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 Moving on. Yeah. Okay. So, Andy, you brought up the Chromebook as as kind of the answer to use in the cloud for all things. And we had an article posted to the Reddit this week. It actually wasn't even by us. Um, I can't remember the user. I apologize. But uh, an article called Kill the Password, which is the the refutation of the idea of using the cloud for everything. Because the basic thesis of the post is that the password is the one fault point that our technology, it's weak. It can't survive it's easily cracked and you can lose everything because of it. Uh-huh. So this was written by Matt Honan, who is very famous for having his accounts cracked and kind of losing everything to hackers in a short period of time. And even having them post things on his, his Twitter account, which is at MAT, like one of the very coveted short Twitter usernames, like racist things, hateful things. He, he basically was kind of destroyed via his online passwords. And he went on to write this article about how passwords are the kind of one point in the web where you trust everything to that password and it's either so easily broken or so easily worked around and we have yet to find a solution to it. It's a thing I've been wanting to talk about in the show for a long time because it's come up in many different ways, but I think this might be one of the most interesting ways because it really covers all the bases. I think perhaps, I, I don't mean to be hyperbolic, but I think one of the greatest design solutions that is coming, or if it doesn't come, then we've just failed, but one of the greatest design solutions that could appear is the solution to the password because it, if you think about it at all it can't survive into the future i think it's a big statement but i think you're probably right just because it is so so important to it's essential to all the things we have on the web and more and more our lives are being ported over to the web so these things are going to become more and more important and the security therefore has to grow with them it's interesting because you know there are ways to be more secure with more important stuff that are not passwords you know in, in development when you can have you know, keys that you have to have on your computer and you have to have register with people. And then, you know, there's ways you can be essentially more secure than a password, but they're all extremely, extremely complicated. I, I agree that figuring out some way that we can make people, average people, uh, use a more secure system is going to be a, a big challenge. If we can, someone can do it, then, you know, they're going to be pretty well off, I think. So a good example of this is I started to play Diablo 3 when it came out. It was a few months ago. And I just had a regular old password on it. And I think uh, maybe about a week later, my account was fully hacked and the guy had his way with whatever was going on in the game and then put me right back to square one. He got all your gold and magic potions and and demons and stuff, right? Oh, I was so pissed. Yes. Uh, Everything was gone. And like they were able to go to like a backup of what my game was and everything was okay eventually like a week later. But uh, the solution that everybody gave me, like hardcore gamers and support and everybody else in between, uh, had said, oh, you should go get the Blizzard key thing. And it's essentially where you very closely tie that with your account. And the only way you log in is by firing up this app either on your phone or on your iPad or something else. And it gives you a, like, 16-digit code or something that you have to punch in and it only lasts for, I think, 30 seconds or, or, you know, something in that ballpark. And to know that that was a solution around the password was a little bit worrisome for me because it took that much just to be able to get into a video game. What worried me even most is that when I was talking to one of the guys I work with who's a 
avid gamer and and a phenomenal developer he said the thing with those keys is that it makes it more intimidating but ultimately somebody could still get in your account if they really felt like they wanted to it just makes it a little bit harder but it doesn't make it impossible yeah no, it's never impossible which is the thing that's the scariest part about it is that you're really you're just working on the kind of two trade-offs of building this impervious system versus versus making it easy to use because Mm -hmm. you can you absolutely can build this crazy system with all these steps but then you the end result is that nobody will actually use it and your ultimate challenge is the human memory yeah if if you want a thing that's easy to use a person has to be able to remember how to do it this is exactly the problem you're talking about with the 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 generating the password all the time like you can't remember that so you can only use it with this additional device on whatever you're doing so ultimately the memory part is defeated and Mm -hmm. i mean maybe the solution doesn't involve the human memory that's where we're at right now Mm -hmm. but it seems difficult even even two-tiered approaches aren't perfect i mean google does something where if if somebody is logging into a strange address like from a strange ip address they can send you send you something to your mobile device that you verify and then you can actually get in which is a really good idea but then again if somebody has your password they could have your password to your AT&T account. They could go set up a forwarding number and they could get it to their phone. And it's it's exactly what you said, Dan. If they want it, if they want it bad enough, they can get there. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I use two-factor authentication everywhere I can. So every time I log into Google, it gives me that it texts me a phone a number and I have to type a number in, which is horribly annoying, but you know, the email is really kind of like the last gate. If someone gets access to your email, then they can reset every other password in the whole planet. So I'm really, yeah. really careful about that, obviously. I, I'm, I'm sitting here wondering what the hell this could possibly be that's more secure than a password. Because even like some of the space age, like futurist ideas of like scanning eyeballs or fingerprints and all that kind of stuff, that stuff mm-hmm. is also pretty easily faked. So I'm wondering what, like maybe <laughs> like blood samples? Like I don't know what the hell. But that's <laughs> actually the ultimate problem with those things. Any biometric solution to the problem is that once it's cracked, you can't reset it. Like yeah. you have a certain blood type, you have a certain fingerprint, your your iris is a certain way, like any of those scanning things, if somebody else cracks it, you're fucked forever. Yeah. So you can't, I mean, it's it's actually, if you think about it, the least secure thing, because a password you can reset infinite numbers of times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hmm. that's uh, that's actually a good point. So even the biometric stuff doesn't, whew, so. And it's <laughs> a huge infrastructure so you... change. I mean, I guess the iPhone potentially could scan a, an eye or a finger, but the blood stuff obviously would be a humongous infrastructure change. I mean, but that might be that might be the scale of this invention, though. Like, you might need to yeah. invent something that is that big in order to solve this problem. Yeah, I, I guess if if it it is a big enough problem that you could potentially change the entire infrastructure to make it work. I mean, you think about inventions like the car. That's a huge deal. Obviously, you need roads to make it work. Mm-hmm. You make roads because it's such a good idea. That could be the scope of it, but I, I do wonder if there is a solution somewhere in between where you can actually use existing devices and, and make it happen. But part of me wonders if it's kind of like nuclear weapons or something where you just have to decide that humans are good enough for us to all exist. Mm-hmm. So either, so I mean, we need a way to prove that somebody is themselves, mm-hmm. but that thing has to be able to be changed for security reasons. And we're not hoping they, we don't have to ask them to remember what it is because that well, is, you know, obviously What faulty. if it was multiple things though? Maybe something practical like what we've been doing with a password that can be changed on a whim even, but actually having to match that with something that can't be changed, something like a fingerprint. Because if it had to be a, like a two-step process, something that was a part of the 
physical world that cannot be changed and then something that is just kind of flexible, then to me that would actually feel more secure than just having a password or just having like your eyeball scanned. Yeah, but the more things you stack up, the more just work it is to get into everything. And that's going to be just people aren't going to do it. You still have the same problem of like if the fingerprint is cracked, then the password we've already established can be cracked. Oh, so yeah. the fingerprint well, switch now is completely eliminated. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's I don't know. It's interesting. It's also interesting that you bring up the the sort of gaming aspect of it, Dan, because I've heard from multiple people that all these sort of like games have much better security than like banks do because yep. <laughs> because the people that make games are nerds and nerds are more flexible and easy to change than a whole like banking infrastructure. So they care more about the security than even you know people that are running banks do. I mean, look, there's so many things about security that are so antiquated and don't work at all. I'm so excited to like tell my kids about it in 20 years that we had security <laughs> questions to get into a thing, yeah. which is the, the best example of, oh, you could just simply Google that. Or if you knew anything about this person, you'd be able to answer that question. Mm-hmm. But it, I also sort of built up my own hacks around those things. So I think I can say this. I don't think there's a security risk on the air. So I have one answer, which is a random thing that is for every single security question on any single system. So the answer has nothing to do with what the security question actually is. It's something I can remember because it's only one random thing. And then that's how I answer all my security questions. So I'm never actually answering like, you know, what street I lived on when I was a kid or my mom's maiden name or anything like that. So I think in some ways we can sort of hack away around these systems to use them better than they're actually built for. Yeah, and I think any security expert would advise to do that. It's just that when, I mean, it's but it, it's a hack too and it's kind of pro- a problem with the design of the system is that if you ask a person a question, the most natural thing is to answer the question. So to get the information out that to enough people that you're supposed to give uh, a non uh, a non intuitive answer to that question it's huge it'll ne- it, it's only for the nerds who care about security which is few and far between mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. one time i had a i was had a bank account where i had to set up like a whole thing and there was one security question where you had to like give it a question like write your own question and then write an answer i didn't really read the context of it so the question i wrote was just you know what's cooler than cool and the answer was ice cold and it turns out it was the question that they ask you on the phone to verify your you over the phone. Oh, so one time I like <laughs> one time I like called my bank and she was like, "Well, Mr. Mangold, I have to ask you the security question." And she paused and she goes, "Uh, what's cooler <laughs> than cool?" And I was like, "Ice cold. Ice cold is cooler than cool." Uh, that's long since been changed for anybody wondering trying to get into my uh 7-year-old bank account. Oh, Not that God. anymore. That is gold. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Well, I, I kind of feel like we're just we're playing out the same thing that we've been doing for a long time. Because when I think about these passwords, I think about a lot like a lock on a door, where sure that's going to keep most people out and like keep the like people that don't really know how to pick locks or anything out. But then there's the guys who pick locks or the people who will just smash the window open and go in that way. So I I feel like it's just the same problem that's getting played out in different ways. The reason I make the analogy to a weapon. Is because it's to me it's an arms race. It's the you design a sword, so you design a shield. You design a gun, so you design body armor. And kind of whatever you design, someone will find a way to hack around. You have to design the next thing. It would be an amazing thing to be able to design the solution that can never be hacked. But I think that if it comes from a person, then a person can find a way around it. And that's the inevitable thing. And we're always going to be running down that road. And yeah. it's really more about evolving to a point where you don't have criminals. And I don't know that you'll ever get there, mm-hmm. but if you if you really think there's a solution that can last forever, then you think that then that's more a question of human morality than it is about wait, design. Wait, wait. Let's just put booby traps in the code. 
Like if you try to hack something, it like throws a digital dart at you and then you die. So, so you, you kill everyone who forgets or... their password? Is that what yes. you just did, Dan? Yes. Everyone who forgot their password, you're dead. No reset password button. <laughs> hey, I mean, overpopulation is also a problem. we got to weed people out in some way. I mean, to be fair, there is still the possibility of, like, you design the best solution of the day until it's cracked, and then the next smart guy does it again. I mean, yeah. I mean, part of our world, too, is just evolving and innovation, and that's great, too. But it's frustrating that there can never be the best Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to avoid that obvious transition to continue this conversation a little bit more and say that you're <laughs> right, Dan, about the fact that there are there's no true security, either physically or digitally, which makes me wonder, like, what what is like Obama's web security like? I, I know for the longest time until his first term, presidents weren't allowed to use their own phone. They had a very specific oh, piece yeah. of hardware that was like the, the super secure phone made by a super secure phone company. And only uh-huh. very recently did they let Obama use like his iPhone or BlackBerry or whatever. I'm curious as to what's the password reset like on the president's password for his email account. What does that oh, look God. like? Yeah. I, I bet it has more to do with what he's allowed to talk about on his phone than what the security is. Because there's clearly a certain amount of security that can happen on an iPhone. I bet mean, it's more about like, here are the protocols that discuss this, and this is for your personal stuff. If you're interested in supporting the On The Grid podcast, we have an interesting sponsorship model available. You can email us with your website, mobile application, maybe a logo or a poster, some sort of design work, and we will critique it on air, which provides twofold value for you. One, you get some critical feedback on your thing to make it better. And two, you get some ears that get to hear about your product. And we're going to try to be as honest as possible. And hopefully it's a work in progress so we have something to actually discuss. Yeah, and we just give it an honest critique to say, this is what our thoughts are. Maybe this could help you out. You can email us at mail at onthegrid.co. You can also give us a call if you want to provide a short little description and some context. Our number is 973-ON-GRID-2, which is 973-664-7432. And if you mail us, we'll send you rates, and we'll tell you what we need from you. An image, just a little bit of context, so we know what we're talking about. All right, now time for a less graceful transition. Thanks for not taking it, asshole. Well, I, there was more, <laughs> I have more to say, so... I know. I, pre- I appreciate that. I really do. And you get to edit this one, so do what you want with it. You can make yes. me say the best uh, right now, and we uh-huh. move. The best. You're the best, Matt. Hey, thanks. Let's talk about the Nesta article. Anyway, so Dustin Curtis wrote a piece on his blog almost a week and a half ago now, I think, where he was talking about how he makes decisions when he buys things. And he was specifically telling the story about when he moved to the Bay Area and he was like living out of a suitcase and had very few things. And he was very careful when he had these very few things to buy the best of everything. So he bought the best bag and the best coat and the best everything. So he knew he could trust his stuff and knew that it would never fail. This is something that is hits close to my heart. I've been sort of on a a lifelong journey to find the best of everything so I can trust the things in my life. But I actually, I, I linked I know, somewhere on the doc to a different piece called The Last Viridian Note by this uh, one guy that used to write an email newsletter called The Viridian Note. He touches on a lot of the same ideas, but I think in a more thoughtful way. The way that Dustin seems to perceive the best, I think, is kind of shallow and very designery. <laughs> So I, I was curious. I think that we probably have differing opinions on this, which is why I want to bring it up. So what did yeah. you all think of Dustin's post the best? And the Verdian note if you read it. Right. Now, I actually, I did read both because we, we wanted to bring this up previously, and it seemed like we needed to look it up a little bit more. I, I actually have to say, I do really appreciate Dustin's piece about the best. I mean, it is like, look, it's short, so it is a summary of the idea of it. And I appreciate his take on it. 
I mean, he, he makes it very clear. Like, I think it's unreasonable, and he makes it clear in his article that it is for unreasonable people. So that's fair. But the other point is that the best is not really defined. And, mm-hmm. of course, the best is—what the fuck does the best mean? I love the idea of the best, but, like, he, for example, he posts a link to flatware that you can buy on MoMA's store. Mm-hmm. Why the fuck is that the best? I know that there's a description of what makes it the best, but— there is no real answer to that question. So the most challenging part for me is not whether or not you should live your life that way. It's how do you define what it is? And that is a quest I've been on forever. So let me give you my, my perspective on that and mm-hmm. let, you, let you feel around as huge you think. So whenever I buy anything, which I try to make rarely, I don't buy things often, but when I do, I make sure that they are exactly what I want. So I'll avoid the word the best because that's obviously subjective but i make sure that i have found exactly what i want and i don't compromise on that so if i know this is what i want and i find something that's 95 percent as good and like half the price fuck that thing because if i get that thing i'm going to always see that five percent that i didn't want every time i use it for the rest of my life so i wait to find a good deal on a thing that i'm, I'm not going to compromise on and the things that are really important to me are that a thing be built to last and of quality materials so I, I hate plastic, except for instances where plastic has to be used. Obviously, there's really, really valuable uses for plastic, mm-hmm. but it also became a really cheap way to make just about anything. And in most instances, that thing is better suited by some sort of natural material, uh, which brings me to the second point, which is that I like things that wear in instead of wear out. So I'd much rather have a pair of shoes that is you know, made of actual leather and isn't as comfortable the first time you wear them, but you keep wearing them and wearing them and they start to shape themselves to your foot. And the same can be said of bike saddles and tons of things. So I like things that wear in instead of wear out. I think that stuff that's made of plastic and mass-produced garbage is largely in the wear out category. Like your Tupperware is just going to be Tupperware until the day the lid splits and then it's just broken. But if you store your food in, you know, some metal tin or something, that's going to be fine probably forever. It might wear in, it might get some weird like stains and marks on it, but it's going to be functional for a long, long time. Hmm. I look for thoughtfulness in design. So something that's designed to do one job and do it well and less like the Swiss Army knife approaches. So if I need a chair, I look for a really good chair, not a chair that can also double as a, I don't know what else a chair can double as. I guess you could store stuff on it, but something that's <laughs> simple and approaches the design from a considered way. Man. I actually, you know, I don't take a wildly different approach. It's just that it's been more recent that I found it valuable. It's, it's funny when I arrived at this, but it came through a trash can. <laughs> and we're, we're going to laugh at it. All right, I'm calling it right now. Yep. The title of this episode has to be, it came, to a, came through a trash can. <laughs> so all, all of the points of this are funny. But so my girlfriend and I moved in together not too long ago. Mm-hmm. And one of, the, one of the necessary purchases that surprisingly we didn't have, we didn't really either have was an, an, an actual trash can. We had the little tiny trash cans, but we didn't have like a, a trash can that actually stores enough garbage for <laughs> two people. Mm-hmm. And so we went to Bed Bath & Beyond and we looked at the trash can island. We, we walked down the island, saw all the different options, and we're like, oh, my trash cans are so expensive. What the fuck? <laughs> and so we just thought, you just put garbage in it. Why does it matter? And we got the cheapest one. Yeah. And for the next couple of weeks, we just hated this stupid trash can that didn't work very well. It like the lid would fall off it, if garbage got to the top of it. It didn't swing all the way. There were so many flaws with it that it became more frustration than it was worth. And we realized we only spent twenty bucks. And then I actually there's this this web series called I Miss Drugs, which is uh, a web series about. No, this is getting better. Really, keep going. A couple, um, and it's it's a comedy. You know, it's it's like five minute jokes. 
And one of them, one of the the episode two is called Simple Human, and it's this guy just sipping his coffee, and he's he's looking at his girlfriend or wife, whatever they are, and he's just like, "We got this Simple Human trash can." Susan and I got a new trash can at Target over the weekend. My my wife said, "You know, you're not going to miss the extra twenty bucks. Just get it in a month. You won't miss that twenty five bucks, and we'll still have this awesome trash can that will be our trash can for years and years." He's like, "You know what?" I don't miss the extra 20 bucks. It's great. It's a beautiful trash can. I love Uh it. We got it. It's really stylish. Like, super handsome. And I was like, holy shit. He's right. I wouldn't miss the 20 bucks. I've spent 20 bucks on all kinds of dumb crap, and I have this stupid trash can that I hate. (laughs) And you know what we did? We went and we got a trash can that we don't hate. It's not a problem. I don't think about it anymore. I don't think about the fact that I spent 50 bucks on a trash can, and I also spent... 20 bucks on a stupid trash can that we, we find that found another purpose for, but we wish we were rid of. Huh. So yeah, exactly. And I mean, that I sort theory of, <laughs> extends. Yeah. And I, I've always sort of had a little bit of this inclination, but more so when I like moved, I mean, I've lived a bunch of different places while I was in college, moved a whole bunch. And I have this big, big, just like entourage of crap. I brought with me from every place here and there. And it was like a pile of Ikea furniture and all the clothes I'd ever acquired through all of high school and college. Cause I never threw anything out. It was just like this big, like cloud of garbage. And when we moved for the most recent time, which was just like a six months ago, seven months ago, I looked at all this crap and I was just like, I don't like any of this shit. I don't want any of it in my life. So I threw out like four, I donated like four fifths of my clothes. I threw out all my furniture because it was just Ikea garbage that had fallen apart. And sure, it was like really affordable. And it was like, oh, cool. I can have a dresser for a hundred bucks. But at the end of the day, you end up with garbage. Like that, that hundred dollar dresser is going to be hundred dollars worth of garbage in X amount of time. And I've definitely leaned towards having way less stuff in my life and making sure that the things I have in my life are things I really, truly care about. I think that sometimes these kind of decisions can get a bad rap. Like people look at people that are willing to spend, you know, a few hundred dollars on a pair of boots and think it's like really selfish or materialistic or shallow. But the fact of the matter is, if you buy nice boots, they're going to last you forever and you can get them repaired. And if you buy shitty boots that you get it like, you know, fucking pay less, then they're mm-hmm. going to wear out soon and you get to buy more boots and you have more and more shitty boots. You never get to wear good boots ever. I think a lot about how the world used to be in this sense. Um, I watched a really interesting super indie documentary. It was a really compelling quote from this lady who was like, she was poor, essentially. She had very little. They had this like house that had like seven kids in it and like two rooms. And uh, she was talking about how, you know, when they buy clothes, they buy like the best shirt they can possibly find because they cannot afford to be cheap. They can't afford to buy a bunch of shirts they're going to have one shirt and they're going to wear it all the time. So it has to be a good shirt. And they can't afford to have all these crappy shirts lying around and replace it every six months. And mm-hmm. that really struck me in a, in a big way. And I think that choosing to live this way is actually more fiscally responsible in the long term. And it's certainly more environmentally responsible because we're not partaking in all the shit that people are willing to try and sell you. Actually, I want to hear Dan's take, but I think ultimately you're right. It's just I want – it's hard to find the list of the things that I should get. Like that is a hard thing to find. Yeah, yeah. For me, this is really hard to wrap my head around uh, because I think I, I boil it down to two categories of things that are around me. Uh, there's the things that should last, like a, a chair should last a long time. If you buy a chair, it you should mean it, and it should be something that you would be okay with owning and, and partaking in the use of 20 years down the road. And I feel like we've done that with some stuff, and, and we're accumulating things over the years. We still have some of the practical stuff from college, but you know that's there until we could replace it with something better that we actually care about. And then there's a whole different category for me that I feel like I'm, I'm practical to a fault with. 
And it's the things like the, the pens I use, uh, the notebooks that I use, the, the desks that I use that I end up being extremely practical about. Like the, the pen I use is just something that I can find in any Target at anywhere. I think it's just a Pilot G2. I get moleskins not because I want to be a pretentious designer. It's because I can. I know I can walk into practically any bookstore and find it. So when I need a new one, I don't have to go on the, a grand search to find it. And even when it comes down to shoes for me, I, I don't know. I, I've always been in the camp of just wearing Converse's because for me they're extremely practical. I, I, I wear them anywhere, literally. I don't have any other type of shoe. I, I think except for one pair of dress shoes. And those are the sort of things that I know that if it broke or if it failed or if for some reason they were stolen from me, I can go find a new one. And I know that I'm not going to be overly emotionally attached to them. So and I, for me, it's hard to wrap my head around things that I only have to buy once and I have to mean it because there's always that thing in the back of my head. Like if it just totally breaks or it's gone the next day or anything like that. So here's something I do want to ask you guys about. It's a statement I want you to think about for a second and let me know your thoughts. It is more practical to buy a new one than to move it. It implies a certain lifestyle, but what do you think about that? I have known a couple of people that have moved like across country or something, done some big move, and in the process like sold everything they had to their name and then bought all the things again. And I think it can be a really nice... like reset where you say okay sell all the things i have you know i didn't really like that trash can that was kind of a shitty trash can this is an opportunity to upgrade the trash can and so i i heard a really interesting i forget where i found this i'll have to look it up put it in the show notes but somebody a while ago uh talked about how their perception of the world was that they owned everything uh, thanks to the internet they owned everything in the whole world and if they wanted it, all they had to do was go rent it from eBay, and they paid a price for it, and then they you know, had to pay to put it back in storage, and eBay is essentially storage for them. They, they own all the things in the world. They just have to pay to get it out of storage whenever they want, um, and this was a way for them to like free up their like idea of owning things versus being able to get them. I think that's a really interesting idea because with something like eBay, you can have access to pretty much anything that you can buy. If you can't buy it on eBay, you know, good luck buying anywhere else. It's going to be difficult to find, so... Yeah, I think it's an interesting idea. Yeah, uh, being that guy who had moved across the country, uh, we didn't do the. We weren't in the camp of just like ditching everything and then buying new crap on the other side. Uh, we did get rid of a lot of stuff, but it was mostly just to be able to save space. And when we did move, the thing was that I I started work two months before our stuff actually arrived, so I was in in empty apartment with a air mattress for about two months, and. Even though not everything that we own is particularly valuable, like things that you wouldn't say like, oh my God, that's an Eames lounge chair. How could you ever get rid of it? When things arrived, even if it was the cheapest thing, I was glad to see it because it was home. I think that's why I have such a problem with this is because it doesn't, for me, it doesn't necessarily have to be the perfect solution for what I want in life. I think it's just a level of comfort that I have with these things around me. I don't think that's, I don't think that's negligible though. I mean, I know we're talking about the Dustin Curtis uh, article, but there is the the last Freudian note does bring this up in what the sentiment is. So mm-hmm. there is obviously value in that. So I don't want to dismiss that. I don't know, Andy, do you, I mean, does that make a huge difference to you? Well, I think you can definitely form a sentimental attachment to anything. And that sort of attachment can trump any design consideration or materiality or construction quality of a thing. I just think that I've found myself getting more attached to things that I think are beautiful and great solutions for X problem that I have. So in absence of having other things that I'm 
attached to. I end up just hating the things in my life that are shitty. Like, I hate every dishwasher ever. I've never <sighs> met a dishwasher that all the dishes fit in in the right way, and then mm-hmm. it did a good job, and then you could take it out and put it. I think it's just a really difficult problem to solve, and for that reason, I just fucking hate dishwashers. Every oh, time you I would love the dishes, New York then. We don't even have those. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't want a dishwasher. The only time I would want a dishwasher is if I had a big party. But other than that, like, every day I'd so much rather just wash my dishes and put them on the thing somewhere to dry. Because... I get, like, pissed off every time I have to load the stupid dishwasher and nothing fits right. I'm pissed off when I have to take it back out and put it in the shelves and be like, why do I have two places to store my plates when it's so stupid? Actually, um, it is, you know, I will say that spending maybe the first three quarters of my life in a place with dishwashers and the, actually, not even th- more than three quarters, way more than three quarters. Fractions. And then spending the most recent years of my life in a place where there are no dishwashers, you realize that... If you just spent a little bit more time scrubbing off the dish, it's done. Yeah, exactly. And dishwashers take up a cubic yard of space just to fucking clean shit, and they don't even do that great of a job of it. It makes me so mad. I hate them. I like and, dishwashers. And this, is, this, is why, <laughs> this is why I hate Christmas, because Christmas is about oh my giving, God. giving people that shit. Oh, that's a nice color. I bet Andy would like that, which is not the case at all. I don't like it because it's a nice color. I want things that I want very few things, and I want things that are perfectly considered. And I don't blame people for not being able to figure out what I consider to be the kind of thing that is the perfect solution for me. Cause that's a really difficult yeah. problem thing. I mean, I end up researching every little thing I buy to no end and weighing mm-hmm. the pros and cons and figuring out what my real sensibilities are. So I don't ask people to know that. I just ask them not to buy me stuff. If you're well, listening to this and you're related to me, just don't buy me stuff. I don't want more stuff. But to that point though, I mean, this is a bit anecdotal, but every Christmas mom ends up sending an email to all the kids, uh, which involves, you know, like girlfriends and wives and everything. And she says, okay, I need something for your book list. And your book list is basically whatever you want as a book. It has to be a physical book, not an ebook or any other crap that you have to tell her like a list of these things. She's going to pick one and that's going to be part of your Christmas. So it's like a big part of us as much how Matt said with his Christmas is that it's very practical and very functional. So you'll get a book that you know you want and it'll show up. It just wasn't bought by you. And and even other parts of our Christmas was like getting a ladder or getting like a shop vac. Like that's the sort of Christmas that we boys had. And was it a good the, ladder? Was it a good shop vac? Yes. Is it a ladder you want to have forever? Is it your ladder? No, no, it's not. What uh, one I would want to have forever, it is the one yeah, I well, will have forever. That's the <laughs> difference because it is sitting in the closet right behind me right now, and the shop vac is in the other closet. And it, and that's the point is that it might not be the most aesthetically pleasing, and it might not have all the bells and whistles, but it is exactly what we're a ladder need. shouldn't have bells and whistles. If, if oh, I yeah. wanted a ladder, it would be one that didn't have any features. It would have no locking mechanism no stupid shelf you can put stuff on it would be just a fucking exactly ladder. Yeah, and that's all it is it's a ladder it's a very sturdy ladder i don't I know do, maybe, maybe I i'm just to too say, critical i do appreciate that andy the most honest the most brutally honest man on the planet has mm-hmm. not you need to be more brutally honest with your family you need to have a brutally <laughs> honest christmas yeah. I, I have done this a long time ago andy yep. come on i have done this i've tried to do this <laughs> But the brutal honesty is like, you don't know me. <laughs> it's it's awfully hard to tell people that. So, I mean, every year I do, I say like, don't get me anything. Like, I don't mm-hmm. need things. 
Just you can't like, say that like get me get me a pie. Get me an apple pie. People don't people say that and they don't mean it. Yeah, but you I fucking say, mean it. I mean it so it hard. You, you are a designer who understands that, uh, the importance of framing. You got to frame it the right way, Andy. Come on. I don't know how else to frame it. I don't know. It's just Matt is laying the smackdown. This is awesome. I just I I just think it's funny. I oh, yeah. I love that Andy is so practical and honest and sometimes it, like I I love how family just doesn't go with it. I yeah. it happens to me all the time. I'm sure it happens to all the people like you can be the most you like I feel like you could be the best at anything and your family could be like, Oh, that's cute. Did you do that little thing again? You'd be like, Oh, always bring me down. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know what? You know what we need to do? We need to get Andy a practical holiday gift. I think no, that's what this no, involves. Fuck you. Fuck you, you goddamn <laughs> asshole. You're listening to me at all. You yes. don't even know me, cat man. You and your fucking cats. Oh, he needs like an Urban Outfitter sweater or something. Is that what he's been yeah. saying the whole time? Oh, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm done. Really this podcast is over. We made it 20 episodes and then, then we finished. This is it. Hope uh-huh. you guys enjoyed On the Grid. <laughs> <laughs>
You can email us, mail at onthegrid.co, call us, 973-ONGRID2, tweet links to hashtag onthegrid. If you want to submit something for us to talk about on the show, onthegrid.reddit.com. If you enjoy the show, please review it on iTunes. Thanks to Girlfriends for the music. Thanks to you for listening. Until next week.